1: This is Masters in Business with Barry
2: Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
1: This week on the podcast, our returning champion for the sixth time, my friend Jonathan Miller. He is founder and CEO of Miller Samuel, where he has been covering the real estate market for the better part of 40 years. Uh, Not only is he an appraiser, he's pretty much been in every single Uh, penthouse in Manhattan. Some of the stories he tells, I couldn't get him to coax out stories about David Bowie and other celebrities, but I've heard them all over a beer and they're amazing. There are few people more knowledgeable about what's going on in the state of real estate, why it it got to where it is today, how it's changing and what you should know about prices and and supply in the near future uh, than Jonathan He is just simply the go-to guy when it comes to residential real estate. I found this conversation to be a lot of fun, and I think you will also. With no further ado, my conversation with Miller Samuels, Jonathan Miller. Jonathan Miller, welcome to Bloomberg.
2: Oh, great to be here. It feels like I've been here before. Uh,
1: You are a returning champion. I think this is your fourth, fifth, something like that. Sixth. Sixth. So every time there is tumult, in the real estate market, my instinct is always to say, let's get Jonathan in here and talk about what's going on in in the real estate uh, world, to talk about what's going on in real estate. Before we get to that, for the people who might not have listened to the previous five conversations (laughs) we've had, why don't we just delve a little bit into your background, starting with, you you said you stumbled into appraising and real estate. Uh, Tell us what that means.
2: Well... Uh, Actually, I moved to New York in the um, mid 80s and uh, because my parents had moved here and my sister had moved here and they're saying this is incredible. I grew up in the D.C. area Mm -hmm. and was living in the Midwest and my wife and I came to a wedding here and were completely hooked. Within three weeks, we sold our cars and moved and slept on my parents apartment, one bedroom apartment floor uh, within three weeks of uh, our visit here. We just wanted to be here, and there's no regrets. We love it.
1: The, the 1980s New York area was kind of transitioning from yes. the really dumpy 70s to, hey, the 80s and the 90s were kind of a boomy area. Here. Yeah, yeah. It, what
2: was that transition like? Well, when we moved in uh, – We went through we we basically, you know, got the idea as a family to start a real estate appraisal business. We'd actually raised money um, from Japanese investors through an attorney to start a real estate brokerage firm Uh and got to the bottom of the form where you had to sign the dotted line and said, no, let's do appraisal. <laughs> it was just like it was, you know, just this sort of odd moment where we really didn't want to become real estate brokers, and uh, and we had real estate expertise. We had uh, a lot of technology that we were playing with. Um, uh, I used to sell units in an on-site sales condo um, new development on the Upper East Side. And I literally put the entire Schedule A, which is the pricing square footage unit numbers, in a Hewlett-Packard 41B mm-hmm. using bit mapping. And we could walk around. And I, instead of having, you know, when people would ask me, what are the common charges? What are the, you know, I, I'd literally have it in my handheld. And, um, and we sort of turned that into a valuation business. And uh, it's been since 86 uh, that we've been in appraising property, about $5 billion a year in Manhattan. Wow,
1: that that's amazing. So before we get to the pandemic, which obviously had an enormous outsized effect on real estate, let's talk a little bit about the financial crisis in the mid-2000s. Uh, a lot of real estate companies crashed and burned then. How did you manage through the GFC, and, and what sort of uh, world were, were we existing in back then?
2: Well, actually, I thought, uh, leading up to the great financial crisis, I thought to myself, uh, we're going to be out of business within a couple of years because nobody wanted an independent valuation. Everybody knew the number but the appraiser. Mm-hmm. And so the system incentivized mortgage brokers to hire the appraisers that made the numbers for them because they wouldn't get paid until the deal closed. Right, And we weren't morally flexible Uh <laughs> And uh, so that was really lean a lean period, and um, and I remember I was interviewed, and some national TV uh, uh, program uh, interviewed me and said, um, you know, what's the, you know, what do we not know? And I said most of the appraisals being done through mortgage brokers aren't worth the paper they're written on, and I'd say seventy five percent of them. Wow! And then I was sort of attacked by my industry that at least the local competitors who were very morally flexible and were really doing well and uh in 2008 that same journalist came to me and said this is the guy who told us three years ago that this was <laughs> going to happen and i i ever since then apparently i got a lot smarter right you know i was right. saying the same thing but I was right.
1: It just—it just sometimes takes a while for people to realize yeah. that the painful thing they're hearing. You know, when there's a lot of pushback, it's because you're telling people things they don't don't want, want to, hear, to hear, and right? they have—they're
2: invested in the old way. And in fact, when I started going negative on the market, um, I remember being in a New York Times front page story about prices dropping X percent, and I remember a real estate. Uh, brokerage ceo uh to remain nameless called me and said what are you doing you know hey. and uh you know this is wrong you you know you can't talk and i said telling the truth you got to be transparent and what's really interesting to the industry's credit is there's a lot of market studies out like we publish but the brokerage community um has you know compared to what it was in the the 80s and 90s is dramatically more transparent even though not perfect about what's happening um, as opposed to you know in the dark days of Lehman collapsing and you know brokers at panels I was on was saying this is just going to last a couple of weeks everything's great. Right. Uh, it's always
1: a great time to buy or, or sell, sell. Right. right? Do you remember that ad? The yeah. National Association. Yeah, I think you wrote
2: Books? a piece about. I, like I, a, I a, might a, have. Yeah, I think I, uh, where there was like one month out of like the last twenty years that it wasn't a good time to uh-huh. buy. It was so.
1: it was great. Listen, it's always a good time to generate a commission if you're a commission real estate agent. Which, of course. And my mom was a real estate agent, so this was always right. dinner table conversation. Like you, she wasn't afraid to call people out. Right. Um, the fascinating thing is, we'll talk a little more about the appraisal industry in a bit, but back then, appraisers were not really helping the buyers. They were just helping the brokers... Get a bank loan through the process.
2: Well, yeah, sort of. I mean, essentially what no one understood in the industry and still don't understand today in the real estate industry is that the when appraiser is doing an appraisal for the buyer that's getting a mortgage, their client is actually the bank.
1: Right. And so
2: so now there's all kinds of restrictions post-Dodd-Frank introduction to the to the process where you know, uh, people can't talk to you like they could.
1: Back in the day, yeah. hey, I
2: have, we're paying this and
1: here's how much my mortgage is. And this is what
2: I need. Right, keep this it is fair, what <laughs> keep it fit's It's like
1: Rodney and
2: Caddyshack, well, I, just I, keep I, it fair. I The term back then was here's a good appraiser, good in air quotes, yeah. and good translated into making the number. So I was always shocked at the idea of quote unquote comparables. If you're in an upward
1: price spiral that is essentially a mortgage driven bubble. What good are comparables? Hey, this house down the street is overpriced 30%. Give these people a mortgage for a house that they pay 30% too much. Doesn't make a lot of sense.
2: Yeah, the, the challenge is that you know when we're looking at uh, valuation of a property, we're looking more than price. Price is sort of the caboose at the end of the train. Mm-hmm. Um, leading indicators would be contract activity um, and listing inventory, sort of transaction-based rather than price-based. And so- I would imagine that would tell a bank, hey, if this buyer defaults on this mortgage down the road, the collateral what it looks like. The collateral won't be adequate in or our not, view, right. or, or could, would, or wouldn't be. A perfect example of that is sort of the, when you apply like the greater fool theory to South Florida real estate in right. the 80s, uh, where uh, it was all about carpenters and nurses flipping, you know, quitting their jobs and flipping uh, real estate and becoming, you know, making a lot of money, and then they would turn around and sell it to somebody else for double and double and double and double, and if you actually stood back and looked at a chart of what was happening, prices were going straight up, right, and sales were going straight down, and you could <laughs> see it because. Sales actually lead price direction by right. you know a year in many cases. In
1: fact, in in 5 and 06, people don't you know people were not familiar with the history of the financial crisis. Prices peaked in, I want to say
2: summer of 06.
1: 06 and volume peaked in 005, correct. But the market didn't start to stumble. Market peaked in October 07. Correct. So you still had a full the, the stock market. So you had a a full year or two after housing topped before it started to show, and really the, the heavy stuff didn't start until and the, 08. And the,
2: the answer to that question is always, consumers, when there's when they, they're uncertain, they pause. And so you see the transaction volume drop, but the pricing, that's the greater fool theory, right? right. Uh, continue until there's no more buyers, and then the price is correct.
1: So now let's flip that question and talk about the sellers, because we're currently in a little bit of a challenging market for both buyers and sellers, not enough inventory, mortgage rates are much higher. It seems like sellers are always operating at a six to 12-month lag, maybe even longer.
2: One to two years.
1: One to two years. So so they're always a year or two behind the price. Which, uh, when things start to slow down and prices start to roll over, they don't
2: adjust quickly. They
1: really don't, and I, I'm genuinely shocked that when I look at some prices, I'm like, "Hey, that was a, the right price in December 2021." Right. But you're that that ship has sailed.
2: Well, it's funny you say that because uh, in the beginning of this year, when people said, "What do you think 2023 is going to be like?" I dubbed twenty twenty three the year of disappointment, right? <laughs> because people weren't going to get their twenty twenty one price. Uh, the sellers weren't, but the buyers weren't going to see a substantial savings in um, in in pricing. That prices prices weren't going to correct, and you know, and, too and, a little inventory. And and we we have this collapse of inventory that is now sort of when you think about the the home valuation or just market trends you know typically when there's a negative external event like you know spike in interest rates so if you saw interest rates you know the 30-year fix is more than double what it was a little over a year ago you expect sales to slow down they Mm -hmm. did and you expect inventory to pile high to the sky and that didn't happen and in fact right now new inventory is falling new inventory meaning inventory is coming in right now is is actually going negative, and it should year be year over year
1: comparison. Yeah,
2: it it should be going negative, and it's. I mean, it should be rising, and it's not. And the the uh, and so what that does that you, you're not seeing prices fall because we're actually seeing right now in the second quarter, just looking at the suburbs around New York City, like Westchester, Nassau County, Fairfield County, the market share of cl- properties that closed in this recently completed quarter. Um, The market share of all closed sales was, depending on the location, typically about 45% of the transactions went to a bidding war, meaning that they closed higher than the last asking price of the transaction. And that doesn't happen when mortgage rates double, right? It makes your brain crack thinking about it because it's so contrary. And that's because the inventory factor is what is throwing all the modeling off how many of
1: those transactions were cash transactions where mortgage rates are irrelevant?
2: Right. so so in Manhattan, we uh, the second quarter had the highest market share of cash transactions no in history. two thirds of the transactions. Wow. about sixty five percent. Amazing. Now, what's interesting, if you dig a little deeper, is that the it's not that the whole world is just paying cash. It's that the number of transactions for cash buyers and financed buyers both fell sharply year over year. The aggregate total was about 40% year over year. Wow. But, and I'm sort of making this simplistic, but cash buyers fell 20% and finance buyers fell 50%. Right. And, And so what it meant was there's a lot less resistance to your point of cash buyers. The other thing it says is that cash buyers skew higher in the sort of price strata. So, you know, one of the stories before the pandemic was Manhattan had almost eight and a half years of unsold uh, supply, and that's including active inventory for, for new development, you know, unsold condominiums, whether actively listed for sale or in shadow inventory that the developer could sort of dip into when they ran low of sales. Um, after the pandemic and because of this sort of this the pandemic sort of introduced strength to the high-end market um, the uh, the um, the share of or the the activity um, uh, continued to favor the high end of the market so so instead of being a market that was sort of the low end was where all the action was it became a market where the high end was was strong because the share of unsold condos fell from 8.3 years to about just over three years, meaning it fell by more than half, um, you know, in terms of what it would take to sell off the supply in in New York. It was dramatic.
1: So there's normally a a chain of sales, the starter home, uh, the move up, right? There's a whole run of this. But during the pandemic, a lot of people just said, I'm going to go buy a second home or a third home, a vacation property, so I'm not stuck in a, a city where I can't do anything in a tiny apartment. And that really sucked up a lot of supply.
2: Yeah. The the um, w- w- way I look at it is in in the city itself in Manhattan and most urban centers, sales activity didn't, you know, uh, fell by half. Uh-huh and it fell by half because during a global pandemic in a multifamily building are you going to let strangers into your apartment right, right. the thinking was no <laughs> and um but in reality the buyers that zoomed out to the to the suburbs were largely from the rental market
1: oh, because really?
2: they weren't anchored to another asset um they didn't the, have to sell the affluent yeah they they bought in the hamptons you know a second primary home i called it co-primary at the right. at the time um and and high-end markets in you know the the county surrounding new york um definitely did better and and people moved farther i mean my wife and i moved a half an hour farther from the city because we Figured we weren't going to be going into the city five days a week, right. like I, you know, And you
1: get a lot more bang for your buck the further away you are. Correct. So more property. You you live on a compound with how many different buildings on that on that property in Connecticut? <laughs> Three. That's a lot of buildings. So you you couldn't get that in Darien, right? You right. Couldn't get that right. uh, on the wa- near the water no or way. near a commuter line into the city, right? At least not for a reasonable price, right? So we'll come back to a lot of what's going on in New York and the rest of the real estate market. I just want to touch on one more aspect of your background. You're a professor at Columbia Business School teaching a course on commercial real estate. Tell us a little bit about that experience. What's the course like and, and what are the students like at at? Uh, Columbia Business School.
2: Well, it's uh, it's their architecture school. It's the masters in real estate. So development. not business school, architecture school. Architecture school. school. Ah, okay. It's a masters in uh, real estate development, and so my students are mostly in their you know uh, twenty three to twenty nine, uh, super smart and very ex- eager to to get into the business, and um, so what it has allowed me is a venue. I, I i teach every summer it's not year round mm-hmm. um, i usually have about 150 students during when we were zooming during the pandemic i had like 190 which right. there's a lot of icons in your zoom screen right right you go five or uh, six right. panels in but the program is fantastic uh and i uh i'm one of those people that run up and down the aisles you know high asking five other students yeah talking <laughs> and um and the other sort of secret passion is i get to tell the same dad jokes every year <laughs> because they haven't heard them before or they have but not for me it's a whole new crop it's, of it's a new audience victims or, well right. students right Right. That's hilarious. and uh and 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 what it's what there's nothing better than talking about a topic that you're really comfortable with and really smart people ask you questions that cause you to maybe you know think a little bit differently about the solution sure. or whatever I just I just love the experience. Columbia' has been very good to me and you know and, and I appreciate it and the thing that I uh, I like most about it is um, you know by the end of the class and you're asking you're a- asking questions like they'll answer in unison you know 150 students like like it's like locked into their brain right. and uh, there's not it's totally satisfying <laughs> that sounds like and a I, lot of- I've been doing it for about five years and uh my ritual was and they wooed me for like they spent like a year and a half like taking me out to lunch and say you'd be perfect and say yeah sure you have the right jonathan miller (laughs) and um and and then i did it and um and i remember i used to call my father when he was alive i'd call him in the beginning of the class and say hey dad i just taught my class And he said, Jonathan, you're so respectable. And I'm like, what do you mean? Wasn't I respectable before? Like, is this like it put me over the top? The
1: official (laughs) imprimatur of of society is, oh, a professor in an Ivy League school. Right. You you have to be respectable. Right. Fun fun stuff. So what's the state of real estate in the United States? What's going on?
2: Well, what I wanted to uh, sort of comes to mind is um, something that – hasn't really happened in a in a significant way in the real estate industry but um, there is uh, multiple listing systems across the United States which are essentially a, a a database for real estate agents and you know for managing listings who, and, who
1: controls that monopoly
2: <laughs> the real estate brokerage community <laughs>
1: National association of Realtors you, they own
2: they, they, they... they control about fifty percent of them uh-huh. um, there's also a contingent that are anti. Uh, you know but but it is it is a product of the brokerage community and it is an essential tool to them yeah um, and so uh, this recently uh, um, one of the big there's three or four major software companies that drive the MLS systems uh, CoreLogic is one of them with sure. matrix um, there's Flex MLS and a big one is also rapitoni and rapitoni uh just had a uh, a ransomware attack oh really and they power mls systems like in the midwest like cincinnati and san francisco and um, a few other markets and they can't you know they're stuck sort of like what happened in i think it was suffolk county the ransomware attack on public records where these people Everything make freezes. a living out of using MLS systems, right. and they they don't have access, or there's lots of problems. And I just thought about you know you know big data and the real estate community, and then you you start seeing the you know as more things go online, you're more vulnerable to sure attack, and and that's a real problem for so, the housing. So I imagine to
1: cover. things like uh, Zillow and Redfin are all powered by MLS. Is that yes? Their data you know, like source? they get
2: their data, uh, you know various ways but yeah that you know like it could create who knows how long this uh this will go go on um and and it's you know it, the mls looks bad because hey you got you know shut down but anybody
1: could get hacked. but anybody
2: could right. get hacked right so uh, there's no real answer yet on what they're going to do and i i just i've never heard of a situation where uh you know you know that's going to really impact the Transactional volume in these markets. Huh, amazing.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.
1: We're talking with Jonathan Miller about the state of US real estate. So so Jonathan, tell us what's going on in the United States with residential real estate.
2: Right now the focus has been uh, you know the the inventory challenge and the the doubling of mortgage rates. Um, yeah I remember in the beginning of the Fed pivot uh, a little over a year ago now where you know we started to see rates go up there was this thinking within the real estate community uh, or just people that sort of you know tracked real estate uh, weren't necessarily brokers that we were going to see you know when rates fall again <laughs> then everything's just going to go back to normal and it's like uh, you know that doesn't seem to be on the horizon. Uh, Goldman Sachs just came out and said, uh, you know, maybe we'll see rate cuts by the second quarter of next year, but they're not rate cuts that bring it from seven to three. They're rate cuts that bring it from seven to maybe six or high fives.
1: Uh, that's assuming Goldman is right. Correct. A- everybody's correct. been forecasting incorrectly about recessions, about rate cuts. Yeah. So, so let's talk a bit about. I want to talk about rates, and I want to talk about supply. Let's start with rates. So two years ago, not even a year and a half ago, mortgages, 30-year fixed, you could get as low as 2.75. Now they're about 7.5%. How big of an impact has this had on prices, on transaction volume, and on inventory
2: for sale? So... uh the idea that uh, a, a rapid slowdown in sales, that's the first, you know, sales generally, depending on the markets are down 20 to 40% year over year. But Transaction a, volume. Units that sold. But it's important to remember that a year ago was a rocket ship. You know, it right. was it was an anomaly, historical anomaly. It wasn't-
1: In anticipation of rising rates, a lot of people bought and sold property.
2: A, a, in a significantly higher volume that would be considered- a normal volume right and in every market and and so we're coming off of that high so year-over-year comparisons make it look like you know you're down 40 percent but you were up 50 80 percent a year ago over the prior year right so what
1: does this look like compared to the pre-pandemic average
2: where, where are we um, we're depending on the market we're generally about um Compared to say second quarter nineteen, compared to second quarter of this year, um, we're down about you know in the twenty to thirty percent range from normal. Uh Um, What's really interesting and what what is so different is yes, you have sales drop, so normally you'd expect inventory to rise. If you look across Florida, inventory compared to pre pandemic, which became my Alternative metric to year over year, right, right? Because the distortion that has occurred in in two thousand to and early th- uh, well, really early twenty three has been significant. So uh, in Florida, in almost every almost every market, inventory is more than sixty percent less than pre pandemic. Amazing. Um, and and as a result, you can argue, well, sales are down twenty five percent. you say you know, hey, it's mortgage rates have doubled. Well, it's also because you have dramatically less product. And then on an anecdotal level, um, just in sort of ground-level chatter in various markets that I I connect with, um, that the product that's coming in, back to your, like, how long does it take a seller to capitulate to market conditions? Right. The product that's coming in is priced like it's still the boom. And so, you know... And it takes one to two years for a seller typically or a developer to capitulate to the current market. You know, mm-hmm. because what do they do? They just don't sell. They wait. Right. Hey, it's going to get better. There are
1: no signs of capitulation out there, are
2: there? There's, we're starting to see a little bit, um, but not, not in any significant way. I'd say you know we, we're a year in. So I'd say we're going to start seeing it in terms of better pricing um, over this next year, but nothing dramatic would be my guess.
1: So, so let's come back to this inventory question. There, there are two issues there. I want to go over. One is um, uh, the the footprint of people with you know golden uh, handcuff mortgages. The data point I read recently: sixty one percent of homeowners with a house with a mortgage have a rate that's at 4% or under. Correct. What does that mean these people just aren't putting their houses up for sale anytime well, soon?
2: Well, I, I think first of all the first thing it tells you is that if mortgage rates drift meaningfully lower and by meaningfully I mean, you know, in the high fives. Right. Certainly I'm not talking about fours or 3% range. Right. Um, then you're going to see inventory enter the market. Right. Bec- which
1: would be good for inflation and good for prices. Good for
2: inflation, uh, good for, you know, pricing for new homeowners um, because there'll be more competition. Right. And, um, and frankly, at this time, the only thing I see of bringing rates down, you know, um, besides a recession, which, you know, we've been forecasting a recession in the next six months for the last couple of years, is... Um, <laughs> is you know the idea that we're going to see you know the fed at some point perhaps soon is going to stop you know pushing rates higher and when they do and if they stay still for you know three four months i think you're going to see mortgage rates drift lower Mm -hmm. but not correct not drop sharply and i think that's going to Bring more inventory into the market, but still it'll be far inadequate. the The interesting thing about the state of inventory today is, uh, you know, normally new construction accounts for ten to fifteen percent of total inventory. That's true for Manhattan. It's true mm-hmm. for the nation, um, and uh, now you have submarkets where new construction is like 50% of inventory because there's no there's there's and 50% existing cuz the existing has collapsed right it's so, not coming so let
1: let's talk about new inventory cuz that's um something i've been uh, railing about for a while post great financial crisis home builders were felt burnt cuz they were building yeah. a lot of houses they were speculating a lot of them got caught leaning the wrong way and they kind of pivoted to away from single-family homes, towards multifamily and apartments. And if you look at a chart on new home sales going back to the 2000s, it's pretty apparent new home construction collapsed for the better part of the decade that followed the financial crisis, which raises the question, how short are we of new homes relative to where we would have been without all the craziness in the 2000s um uh, fo- following the financial crisis what what is the shortfall of homes that should have been built in the 2010s
2: yeah millions millions
1: and- so the national association of realtors have a have a number the national association of home builders they're like four or five the architectural group i forget the name they all have thrown out numbers Two, three, four, five million home short Correct. That that but seems
2: huge. But it's actually probably worse than that. Because the population growth? Uh yes. Well, no, it's it's more li- more because uh, if you look at the product that is being built and all the national home builders, in the last ten years they've really there's been a lot of pivoting to higher end homes. And luxury homes. And yep. so when you look at just raw units, they're skewed higher end. So I'd say there's a much more severe inventory challenge for starter homes, first-time buyers um, than we really give credit for. That right. uh, that uh, that it's the product mix has skewed higher end. Why has that happened? Because primarily land sales, right? I mean, um, uh, you know, land appreciates and improvements depreciate, right? right, the way you should think of it. Land is what appreciates. And um, I think we're now seeing a lot of home builders gobble up land um, to sort of anticipate the next wave.
1: I, I'm shocked when I play around with Zillow. Everybody loves the Zillow surf. And the percentage of homes for sales are essentially lots with new construction on yeah. it. And it's not, you know, and they'll, they'll build it to suit. But you're not buying a house. You're buying a, a piece of land and a builder. Right. And that seems to be especially in parts of Florida, the Hamptons, that, that seems to be a wildly disproportionate amount of um it's of, not of inventory.
2: It's it's not conducive for a first time home buyer environment, you know, to do that. Mm-hmm. Um because of you know lending challenges. The other thing I thought was, you know, the numbers that have come out I, I I, I may I don't know if I have this exactly right, but um, that the number of homeowners in the U.S. with a without a mortgage is like 35 percent.
1: Pretty big. It's, it's so it's everybody who does cash purchase and everybody which who's would be paid heavily weighted
2: towards investors, right? And then long-term homeowners where they've paid down the mortgage, right. um, but. Uh, you know, so you think about transactional volume is being restrained by high mortgage rates, but you, you do have a large cohort of the housing uh, inventory that is, or a potential inventory that doesn't have a mortgage issue with it, which mm-hmm. I think is um, something that's probably not understood. So, so how many new homes have to be built to sort of stabilize
1: um, demand for both starter homes and Move-up homes versus the inventory that's out well, there. Well,
2: it's funny. Um, I uh, uh, interface a lot with the affordable housing industry here in New York uh, because our research is, uh, you know, open market. It's not, you know, we're not looking at subsidized housing or anything right. along that line. And uh, the mantra when you talk about like how many more to build. Um the answer across the board is I don't know but a ton more <laughs>
1: like M- literally millions of new homes.
2: Yes, like uh, you know that that this is this is the pr- this is the problem.
1: So so let's talk about a specific new home building problem. Um, how difficult are zoning regulations, health department, department of environmental Conversa- conservation, um just general NIMBY To the ability to put up a decent number of houses.
2: It's it's significantly challenging. What I find, just maybe as a sidebar to this, is on top of that, when you think of things like flood insurance Mm -hmm. and the cost of flood insurance, FEMA prices flood insurance basically at a level that the private market can't compete Right, and so in many ways, the federal government is encouraging development in in flood zones, in flood <laughs> zones, and right. flood zones are not just on the coastline. Uh, you know, we're seeing dramatic, All the rivers, yeah, right, we're seeing dramatic flooding problems in the Northeast inland. Uh, Look what
1: just happened in Vermont and New Hampshire. They correct, got, they got slaughtered up there. Yeah, so
2: I, you know, I see ads on TV for FEMA and it's cheap, and I'm like uh, that that seems counter to sort of public safety um you know a dozen or almost a dozen years ago when we had superstorm sandy hit you know one of the byproducts i know i'm going off on a tangent but
1: well, a decade ago that was a that destroyed huge swaths of yeah, new jersey and new york and just up and down the whole yeah, Long
2: island the south shore um and uh what came out of that is a lot of product that was destroyed, mm-hmm. and was middle class housing, yeah. and so the resulting product on the water line. And they rewrote the the FEMA maps for the New York City metro area, uh-huh. making them much much bigger coverage area. And politically, it was shot down because it would make it more expensive. And um, and what we saw in parallel to that is that, you know, say you had two modest houses on the shore, uh, South shore of Long Island that were destroyed. Um, Investors would come in and buy both lots and build one big house. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's been, you know, after a significant flooding events, like in Fort Myers, um, you know, that's what you're seeing come back. It's, you know, the, the existing sort of middle-class modest housing is, destroyed and those homeowners can't build
1: what i've noticed on the south shore of long island both in nassau county and out in the hamptons is when you are rebuilding a destroyed house seems the rules are you have to elevate that house yes 10 or 13 for like substantial yeah. like a whole flight of yeah. stairs up and um everything that's underneath that is just outdoor storage essentially correct with breakaway walls but cement pilings yes holding the house up on the assumption that there's going to be another uh, storm that will raise water levels five 10, and that's how they feet. can
2: continue to get flood insurance. So, uh, neighborhood uh, where I used to live, uh, ne- the neighborhood next to me in the next town over was on the water. We kept our boat there, and uh, you'd see a house that was, n- you know, normally just sitting where it was sitting before Sandy. Right. And then you saw the houses on either side were like on ten foot pilings. Imagine the garage now right. on the second floor.
1: Right. Well, I don't, a lot of these houses no basements, no garages. Right. But there's a like a carport.
2: Right. The assumption Under,
1: that if your car gets washed away, hey, it's state it is, Farm's what it is. problem. It's not. It,
2: it just. But it was almost comical ah. to see all these garages on the second floor, and you can't really get your car up there. Uh, so, it's obviously going to be redesigned and made into some of Oh, others, so but,
1: these are existing houses yeah, that are like lifted? Yeah, like think new of a raised
2: ranch with a two car garage on the side. Right. Now, the whole thing gets raised up to the second floor. Uh, so, it's really it's a three story structure, right? right? Pilings and place to park your car. The first floor, which is now the second floor, which is where the garage was. And uh, so, you got to think um, the data is not definitive yet, but the house that's in between these two properties is going to be punished uh in value sure. because the buyer you know if they want to have flood coverage they have to elevate or raise the house
1: huh that that's amazing the, there's a house near by where my in-laws live out in the hamptons and i'm like i'd like to take a look at that house so saturday morning i call the agent and uh, or i i do an online request, I'd like to see the house. And the text comes back, the seller requires 24 hours notice. And I just remember my mom saying, Hey, a a buyer wants to come look at your house. I don't care if you're having a wedding. Send everybody next door. Three in morning, three in the morning. (laughs) Open the house, show. Because you don't know if that's the right buyer for your house. Correct. And I was like, well, uh, you know, uh, we could try tomorrow, but you know, let us know. They get back to us on Wednesday. Yeah. And I'm like, we already have an offer in on another house, but thanks. For the call,
2: and um. Yeah, because because really, especially. Uh, even more so today than a year or two ago, you have to be uh, bend over backwards in, a, in accommodation. As a seller. As a seller to be accommodating. Uh, you don't control, uh, well, I, I shouldn't say that. You do, because there's a shortage of listings, you still have control of the transaction in that sense, but it's you don't have the same level of control you had a year, year and a half ago. But not only that, as your mother was very, very accurate in her assessment, Uh, you shouldn't think that way, you you know, unless you're It
1: evinces the wrong attitude for a- Listen, I've owned a bunch of property in and about New York over the years. I've had some terrible sellers we've purchased from, walked away from deals. There are other sellers that- but for my wife, the deal never would have gone through. Right. And um, there have been other sellers who've been, and buyers, who've been a pleasure to deal with. Like, I wish I had another house to sell you. You've been a delight. Right. Um, <laughs> and so when the first, the like, it just rubbed me the wrong way. They require 24 hours notice yeah, that's... to show a house on a weekend. Right. Hey, tell you what, let's have this conversation again in, in six months and- Maybe I'm wrong, and you'll get more than the three million ask, which is crazy for this house. Or maybe you'll realize <clears> you made a mistake. But the process is just like oh, from right out of the gate, you're going to right. be difficult. I, I I don't have time to sell us like that.
2: Well, it's funny, you know, in this in this market, like we sold right as the market pivoted. I remember, uh, and um, and my wife always kids me about being overly eager to pay full retail. Yeah. And so we went into a uh, the house that we ended up buying. We ended up um, uh, paying, we beat 30 people. You paid way over ask. Only 36%. <laughs> right. Although I now, thought- Now, did
1: they price it low to cause yes, a bidding frenzy? I, you and know, you,
2: you gave it a straight up appraisal. Yeah, I thought it was about 15%. Underpriced, and you uh,
1: overpaid by fifteen percent.
2: Right, right. Uh, and but I don't really care. <laughs> right, uh, this I, is the house you're going to live in for the rest of your life. You're done. It's shopping It's going to be a long estate. time, yeah. and and also too, we just absolutely love it. And I've never looked at it as an investment vehicle. Uh, housing itself, it's just a slow moving asset. And right, um, I in fact the last three houses I haven't paid under the ask. We had to that's really interesting, yeah, yeah, because of the timing that it came on, and it was like you know, t- I always seem to we're ready to move, like we became empty nesters, that's why we moved this last time. Our four kids are all gainfully employed, and you know, out of the house and out of the house, and and uh, and we wanted to live a little bit more in the country, and so it was just perfect. But it was like I, for shock value, I always you know, I always own it, you know, and say, hey, you know, we overpaid.
1: By and over market. the course, here's the crazy thing, especially if you're rolling out of a similarly priced house. Yeah. In the And I've had this argument with my kid brother who, you know, he just looks at the transaction, he looks at it very transactionally, yeah. and every, dollars and cents. And I'm like, think about it, if you're in that house for 20 years, and you overpaid 20%, in the grand scheme of things. Does it matter? It's really not. Seg- People have a very hard time yeah. wrapping their head around that. Nobody wants to overpay for anything, right? but this isn't a car or a piece of furniture. Toaster, that, <laughs> right, right? This is right. where you're gonna live, where yeah. your homestead is gonna be, right. where your hearth is, right. for you know over the next couple of decades, a couple of bucks one way or another. And I know that sounds flippant,
2: but, but it isn't. No, I mean that's how we thought about it. Uh, it was perfect, and uh, and we were jo- joking because our old house was built in 1825, and this one's built in 1755. Right, so you're we, running out of we, centuries we,
1: to buy houses. Right, we in. wanted to. Next one is
2: 1600. I really, we really wanted to get something that was built before the U.S. was a country.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> right. So let's talk a little bit about the rethink that the pandemic caused how it changed our relationship with real estate, work, prices, where where do you even begin? It's just such a giant topic. Is it safe to say the pandemic caused us to rethink everything about real estate?
2: I think that's a fair description. In fact, I think the easiest way to sort of start talking about the subject is the idea that uh, Zoom became ubiquitous within 24 hours after the lockdown. Right. Suddenly, Everybody in the world <laughs> knew what Zooming was, and you'd probably never heard of the software beforehand. While there had certainly been there's other video products, this was far easier to navigate, and it became part of our culture almost overnight. Um, and so as a result, uh, it changed what I call... I described as the tether between work and home that normally when people, majority of people that are buying homes that aren't retired are, are thinking about the commute and how far away and uh, and that all got thrown out and we're rethinking it to the point where, um, you know we've seen people move farther from the city. I'm one of those people where I don't go into the city as much as I did. Um, there are people that uh, that you know love still working five days a week, and there's people that don't want to work at all in the you know in the in the office.
1: It's not it's not the work, and it's not even the office. It seems to be the commute.
2: It's the commute is the
1: biggest problem, and I think the pandemic kind of made us realize a lot of us have a too long commute and an uncomfortable commute. And when you're shopping for a house, you kind of imagine, well, I'm 47 minutes away from the door. Then you actually do it day to day and there are delays and there are misconnections oh, and this. Yeah. And what was supposed to be a 47 minute commute is really an hour and 10 minutes. and that adds up 10 times. That's a time
2: week. out of your life that you can't get back. Right, that's gone. Uh, the, the other thing, I think right away, uh, the the sort of stereotypical description of work from home was suburb to city. You know, right. people moved out of the city, they bought, you know, they they lived with relatives or they, you know, bought houses or rented and then commuted via Zoom into their their job in the city. The problem with that, first of all, is completely misleading. Uh, there's, I contend there's just as many people on the upper uh, east side of Manhattan that were uh, work, doing work from home is people that live in Westchester. I right. mean, you know that 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 um, the city c- people are commuting commuting in the city the same way. So it wasn't about like the you know driving in or taking the train into the city so much as it was just physically not going to work and working in your pajamas um, or you know just you know totally a lot
1: more flexibility, a lot a lot easier. You feel. And, and at least in the beginning of the pandemic, it felt like, and maybe I'm projecting my own experience, it felt like I was working more hours than I normally would because I gave up. I gave up the commute. I gave up bathing. I gave up right. getting dressed. Like, right, right. You roll out of bed, you sit at your desk, and my wife would say, hey, you've been there for 14 hours Time for time. dinner, yeah, and it's like we used to joke: we shower Saturday night, whether we need one or not. <laughs> and at, at a certain point, she would come into the office, the the yeah. office upstairs, and say, "Listen, you got to open some windows and air this room out because <laughs> it, it's getting rank in here." I, I just picture that replayed all across the country. Absolutely. So, so uh, listen, I love going into, I love being in the office. I I like work. Yeah. But everything that takes you to listen, I know people who commute from the Upper East Side down to Wall Street, and it takes them about as long to get to work as it does me coming in from the burbs. Yeah, right. And it's just we we don't have the sort of mass transit they have in Europe.
2: Yeah, and I think uh, you know, there's there's people that have the opinion that we're going to uh, revert back to let's call it four and a half days a week. You know where like you know, weekend schedules, people work half days on Friday, but just, you know, call it four and a half days a week. And I contend that, uh, you know, we're probably, you know, if I had to make up a number, I'd say we're at two and a half to three days a week right. as that's an average. Right. Yep. Um, that's what we are in our company. And most of the people I interact with, you know, it's, it's, it's like a little less than three days. And the argument is, you um, First of all, that can vary by, you know, you've industries that are more collaborative. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, the challenge is you can't, it's harder to build corporate culture and to train new talent. you
1: mentor young kids who right. have Right, so, so that's the challenge. You can't do that over Zoom.
2: You can't. And so that is what's going to be figured out over the next five to 10 years. I don't think that's, there's a quick solution. Um, and you definitely have, you know, some industries or some companies that, you know, want five days a week right now. Um, and so the idea is that, you know, what I've heard is like, hey, you're in a, you know, we're going into a recession or a weak economic period. So therefore, everybody's going to go into work four and a half days a week because they want FaceTime with their boss. And, um, you know, I just don't think that's... It's not realistic. It's not realistic in my mind. I don't care whether the economy is strong or weak. It's not going to be the same. But... Um, you know, again, I I think probably we're at a a period of time right now where it's, you know, the default is going to be more time in the office than we have right now, um, but not much more.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.
1: So so let's talk about some other impacts of the pandemic. You you were one of the first people who wrote about, hey, the death of New York City has been oh. greatly exaggerated. And, you know, every time there's a sale, I, I actually just shared a silly article with you from the new york post earlier okay all right so there's a little uh, there's a town adjacent to where i live called center island yes small town a a couple of a couple of you know there's a few hundred houses on it and the new york post and billy joe lives there and he just listed his house for sale for 49 million dollars and it says um uh just mass sales of houses on center island who, who are they selling this to? Right. Is, isn't there Buyers. Also, Isn't this a mass purchase of homes? Right. Like a, every time I see see that sort of argument, and we have a similar argument in the stock market, all this cash on the sidelines, what do you mean? I sold the stock for $100, somebody had to buy the stock for $100, for $100. this is exact same amount of cash as right. it was beforehand. Right. So how could there be massive selling if there isn't a match of massive buying?
2: Well, uh, that... New York Post is the one that had that article that was just a brilliant move, you know, for getting, you know, attention because it was so, you know, you have a nightclub owner saying, not only saying New York is dead, they added New York is dead forever. Right. Like, uh, you know, proclamation. You could say
1: his name, James uh, Altucher. Yeah. uh, Which ultimately led to Jerry Seinfeld's counter-argument, and between Altucher and Seinfeld, I'm in Seinfeld's camp.
2: Absolutely. But-,
1: but but now let's talk specifics and let's put some meat on the bone. Uh, you discussed how, how there's been a huge influx of purchasers and renters Yes, uh, of young people coming from other parts of the country, other cities... Uh, what's going on in the U- in the New York City real estate market?
2: Well, what's really interesting if you look at the census data, because you know I think you know the term migration um, right. can take you know all kinds of uh, connotations. In the in the context of New York City, the concept of net migration. You know right. what's the what's the difference between inbound and outbound? And in 2022, according to census, uh, Manhattan had a net inbound. Manhattan, not necessarily Manhattan. Brooklyn, the Bronx, The other Queens. boroughs had a sharply a sharp drop in the outbounds, meaning that everything got a lot better. Uh-huh. The narrative is, and I remember in the early days of the lockdown, um, where if I read and took every headline to heart, right. You know, because the key words, like you had told me years ago like if you put gold in your post title you're gonna get a lot of traffic right right? and the words during the pandemic were exodus right and the phrase fleeing the city fleeing right and 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 so i took it as uh you know this was in the spring of 2020 i was thinking boy if all this is true there's gonna be 11 people left in manhattan in the by the fall which of course was not the story um and we've seen a you know, and it creates this really confusing narrative because we have office buildings right. that are fifty percent or less than fifty percent used, according to Castle Card Swipe data, right. um, as sort of a proxy for that. And then we have record rental prices, right, right where people if are. If only there was a solution to be worked out. Then. Right, right. So, so you know, the solution we've talked about a lot is this idea of converting unused office space to rentals
1: which post 911 down in the Wall Street area of New York it took a couple of years but there was a massive conversion yes. from office to to now those were older buildings right they class little, B or C right now you have uh, just so you have midtown south you have hudson yards you have the high line you have midtown proper there's a ton of new office buildings that yeah. have been put up in the past decade.
2: But the numbers don't work. Like to convert them to residential, um, uh, any developer will pretty much say that's not possible. But on the margin- there Talk to aren't. me after the bankruptcy sale. See if it makes well, more sense. Okay, then. so that's the next stage. So, So when you think about it, and, you know, my company was looking for new office space. We ended up staying in the same space, got a great deal, build out and all that. But what we found when we were looking at we we're looking at class B, you know, there's right. A, B and C for those who aren't familiar. And uh really the upper half of class A isn't going to be impacted in right. a significant way. It's the bottom half of A and B and C, it's all bets are off, right? right? And um the one thing that I didn't fully appreciate until I went through sort of looking for space is that many, you know, we were talking about sellers capitulating to the weakened market conditions in the office environment landlords, many landlords can't capitulate because the debt service, um, they can't cover the debt service. So I think the way this is going to play out and it's already starting. You can read about, you read San Francisco, you can read in New York city. What's happening is that, uh, we're going to see, um, a lot of, a tremendous amount of office space move from weekends to, to strong hands
1: and to keep in mind the, the people are concerned about this being a systemic threat i keep seeing these clickbait no, it's not. headlines Every one of these buildings is its own LLC, its own corporation. Right. So if if you're a giant real estate trust and you own a 1,000 buildings and one building is in trouble, well, if that building goes belly up, it's like, oops, sorry, and and on to the next. So now you're down to 999 buildings and you don't have the troublesome building. This can take place in a very managed process where one building after another moves from weak hands to strong hands.
2: and and that's where you could see you know more creative, re, you know adaptive reuse where the, the uh, you know the new owner um, is able because they don't have the same level of debt service, um, so prices can
1: come down or come down to market
2: and you know you can you know uh, you know think of other reuses of the property. Um, what I uh, you know what also a lot of people don't real don't think of when they think of this challenge is especially in midtown manhattan where you have these very big office buildings the floor plates
1: too too far from the windows to be uh right unless they replace all those elevators with like a interior courtyard
2: right right or uh you know they 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 create a you know a court you know like sort of like a an alley or you know a center they dig you know, they cut out cut through the floors but that's very expensive right yeah. so So there's ways around it, but it it is not like one of these. Hey, let's flip the switch. Right. It because of the debt service, it's gonna. This is gonna take four or five years, at a minimum, to sort of see it. But
1: but it'll eventually. One assumes market forces will eventually rebalance the demand for office space which Correct. is falling and the demand for a residential which seems to be strong maintaining.
2: yeah actually the joke uh during the pandemic is manhattan's just becoming all residential right everything's going to convert to residential that was sort of the thinking um Th- think about how
1: crazy it is how much new office space Hit the New York market right before the pandemic. Hudson Yard yeah. yards is millions and millions of square feet. And by the way, if you haven't been there, it's beautiful. it's, it's spectacular. spectacular. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's like the new version of Rockefeller Center. And every time I see a new building going up somewhere, you're like, wow, that's huge. Right. Uh, I walk by the J.P. Morgan Chase building all the time. Yep. And they seem. To not care about the excess office space, they're putting up a giant building on Park Avenue.
2: Right, right. I think part of that, though, too, is that there's like a four year, right. le- five year right. lead. That started time, right? in 2018. Exactly, right. So, so, but that that's part of, it. but yeah, like the long term view. Um, but I look at it as uh, when so the 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 big problem or big challenge is New York City's budget is over 50% of revenues are real estate related. Really, that's giant. And so so I don't know what the division is, or the breakout is for commercial um, specifically, but it is is inherent in our revenue structure um, uh, for real estate to succeed. And even before the pandemic, we had changes in laws, like the mansion tax. Right. Uh, the The rent law changed so that conversions of existing buildings are almost impossible. Um, so you know, the, those sort of large scale revenues from residential real estate are severely challenged going forward to the city, and it's in the city's interest. The city sort of. Caught, you know, this is the state is the one that's driving these new laws. Right. Um, but the revenue is critical to the city for the city not to rely on the state. Right. Um, so it's sort of this catch twenty-two.
1: Right. Back back when we had de Blasio and Cuomo, they both despised each other. Yes. And there was no cooperation. One would hope that the the new mayors and the new governor get along a little better and would allow us to uh, Make some rule changes. So so let, let's talk about, you mentioned migration. There has been a general shift lasting decades towards the Sun Belt. Yes. Um, I think it was a Steve Johnson wrote about how air conditioning made this possible, like people don't want to live in Louisiana without AC, or at least a lot of people don't. But this has been going on for quite a while. Um. What's it look like now? I recall, so we looked in Florida in 2019 on the West Coast, and I didn't know, did I want a house? Did I want a condo? You don't have to worry about maintenance on the condo, but then you have neighbors and a house. You have a little more. And between then and two years later, like these little- Prices are
2: up 40%. uh, More than that, double.
1: And, And- It's no bargain in terms of real estate taxes. Florida real estate taxes are like New York real estate taxes.
2: Yeah, yeah. uh, the way to think of Florida, the way I think of it, uh, it, without sounding like I work for the Tourism Board of Florida, is um, the real estate industry down there, because of work from home, is undergoing restructuring. That it's sort of evolving from a place you go to vacation or visit to a place that you live. And what is remarkable about some of the towns uh, uh, or cities in florida is they now hire employees specifically to recruit uh, ceos from the northeast right who then will bring their companies to florida and they've had i'd say you know there's been some standout results i wouldn't say it's you know, over-the-top successful, but it's certainly um, their population growth since the pandemic. Florida's up about 7%. I mean, the substantial. Substantial. And, and so, uh, you know, New York State, and the New York Metro area has to think of themselves in competition with other areas, uh, uh, which is it is seemingly unable to do.
1: I, I had a buddy who runs a bond shop, and about fifteen years ago, he relocated to Sarasota, Florida, and he said John Corzine, then yeah. governor of uh, Florida N- of New, New, Jersey. New Jersey, he said John Corzine bought me a house in, in Florida, meaning his taxes had gone up so much, moving there was was. Uh, yeah, a a yeah, painless like transaction. <laughs> um, although that said, that seven percent boost isn't evenly distributed, and there's lots of stories about these areas in Florida, particularly on the east coast, but parts of the southern west coast that have just been overrun. The infrastructure can't handle it. There's a t- you you bring all the northeast right. problems. So there's a lot of traffic. The schools. Lack capacity, even the the water and and electrical grid and sewage grid can't handle it. Right, flooding. Are are these areas ready for this influx of of migrants?
2: Uh, It's a tough balancing act. Um, You know, you can certainly see in housing prices that. there's even with all the building that's going on, there's inadequate supply. Mm-hmm. Um, the focus seems to be on other institutions that create employment, like healthcare, uh, you know, medical, you know, tech, medical type services. Um, there's been a lot of emphasis on sort of competing with New York, bringing financial services there. Right. You know, there's been a lot of marquee announcements like Citadel and others that have. It's yeah, that, one. that they're going to move their, their so, location. So there's
1: been chatter about uh, the, you had this big surge down to Florida, and now some of that's begun to reverse and people have come back. There was a hilarious article in Bloomberg where they were quoting a trader who had relocated temporarily to Florida, and the line that stood out was, the, the only problem with living in Florida is all the Floridians. Right. And, right, and right. I thought that was hilarious. Um, and some of these folks have been coming back to New York. How exaggerated is the migration to away from California into Texas, away from New York and Massachusetts into Florida? I, I mean, it looks like it's real, but are are the numbers hyped up?
2: Uh, no i don't i i think it is real it's probably exaggerate well it is exaggerated a bit but it it's clearly something that changed um uh during the pandemic and the reason why i say that is um in 2000 january 1st of 2018 the federal salt tax was initiated uh-huh. it's you know, I used to think salt stood for state and this would be like one state of my and local Col- tax. my Columbia student jokes. You know, I used to think salt tax stood for or salt stood for state and stood for Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. <laughs> um, um, but uh, you know, state and local tax, where um, the the deduction on the combination of your state and local taxes and your your property taxes. The deduction was only it was capped at ten thousand right. dollars. When you have houses in Westchester with annual real estate taxes of one hundred seventy five thousand right. dollars, you know that's a tremendous cost hit. Um uh So I don't know what my point was.
1: <laughs> well, well, the the takeaway about what does that do to the so called high tax blue states? Yeah, and is this is well, this well, a, so, so a the, jujitsu that benefits the low tax red states?
2: Right. So so. The, the thinking was um when that law went into effect uh January first of twenty eighteen that you know it was gonna be like the Beverly Hillbillies packing up and like right. going to Florida and uh and the brokerage community was all telling me, you know, we're sitting there, we're waiting. Didn't happen. And it it didn't happen in at scale. It 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 was definitely noticeable, but it wasn't this mad gold rush. Right. When the pandemic hit that was that was advantage. what really stimulated the migration um whether it was temporary or full time so so where are prices stabilizing
1: i look around i see florida isn't the bargain it once was right. cheaper than new york but not as cheap as it once was right and when you look at so florida loves homeowners association fees between the the state real estate tax and hoas yeah Florida doesn't seem like like much of a bargain. Where a price stabilizing and where's some value left?
2: So I would. What's a little different and why I call Florida going undergoing this restructure rather than it being some sort of fluke or you know high moment in price and then it's going to go down is um, because of work from home, as I said. And um, part of what's happening is uh, the market is maturing. Um, it's pivoted into – there's a lot more high-end. So one of the things that I noticed, you know, like as a hobby I collect, uh, because I'm a dull and boring numbers guy, I collect 50 million-plus closings across the U.S. Right.
1: You used to to put out a chart tracking the number of $50 million Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Um, And, you know, I put it into my newsletter periodically. And, uh, you know, it used to be something, you know, over $50 million was like L.A. and – Manhattan and the Hamptons and maybe an occasional sale in Palm Beach right now it's you know dozens of markets in in Florida in in general are seeing these transactions it's much more uh, I'm just thinking of that as a proxy for sort of sort of this discovery of Florida is much more broad-based than than, hey Miami and Palm Beach that's it it's a lot more spread out than it was and I think that says a lot about how the economy is expanding into this sort of year-round uh, living.
1: Um, although, if you've ever been in Florida in July, you, you would question. You would question that. I yeah. do
2: have a one of my my oldest son got a great job offer, and he works in Fort Lauderdale, coming from Connecticut. And he likes the heat, <laughs> so right. so. Uh, to, well,
1: it's August. Uh, what what is he saying now? He did, he did. you realize that photons have so much mass <laughs> when they hit you? It it, it beats you. you that can sun feel it right? Yeah, yeah. It, it has weight.
2: Yeah, no, it's it. You know, he's still an enthusiast. So all right. Uh, so I, I guess if you... Uh, you
1: know. I used to jokingly say, Florida in the summer, you run from air conditioned
2: Yes, house
1: to air conditioned car like New York in the winter you run from heated house to heated car. It's just the opposite. And and the only Texas diff- too, same idea. Right. It's just but it hasn't been getting much colder here but you know parts of the southwest a lot hotter. Texas and now parts of Florida, you see what's going on in the ocean off of. So right. that I, I wasn't planning on asking you a climate change question, but it certainly raises a question at what point do does these like wildfires and persistent heat and water shortages. And I'm not asking this as a um, left or right argument. At what point does this affect property values? It has become harder to get insurance. Like, what are the economic costs of what's going on with all of these climate related disasters we keep seeing?
2: Yeah. Uh, and actually, you know, we're seeing a high, you know, climate change. I think of it as just bringing a higher frequency of disasters and larger scale disasters so into the So, bigger and more. Other than that, nothing Other than that, Other to than worry that about. it's a hoax. Uh, it's a, exactly. <laughs> right. um, but, uh, you know, what's interesting, you know, and, and uh, so first of all, you know, A, it, it adds to your cost of home ownership. B, you have the insurance industry sort of grappling with can they continue? At the premium, even close to the premiums that they're with, when you think of, there's already insurance crisis in Florida. I mean, it's crazy what's going on there. You can't. It's very hard to get insurance. And and that was my point uh, before, is that you know, uh, FEMA, a federal program is basically cutting out by having such low pricing relative to the private markets, is cutting out the private markets. So it's just bringing on more risk onto the taxpayer um, for these locations. Uh, Yeah, wildfires in California. Um, All this just means uh, a higher cost of home ownership and eventually some markets – not being suitable for occupancy I and mean, you know i mean that's that's really what it comes what, what down has to
1: phoenix been triple digits for like 21 days in a row yeah i mean that's hot yeah we. Have... but at least it's a dry oven <laughs> right it's a dry 112 degrees. exactly i mean they've had crazy crazy yeah. numbers
2: yeah it's it's interesting because i uh just as a kid and you know as an adult with kids i always went north for vacation uh-huh. like skiing or cold weather and um, the idea of that heat—my uh, relatives that have moved to Florida—all you adjust to it. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm just not willing to. <laughs> so it—it's
1: it, it, certainly uh, an unusual thing. So, so if Florida isn't a bargain anymore, what parts of the country still are? I—I I know people look in the Carolinas and Virginia. Um, there are parts of the the West, uh, Montana and Utah and Colorado that I, seem to be I, interesting.
2: Know, I. do. You know, it's funny. Um, we have good friends in Montana, and uh, I look at the housing prices of things they're appraising. Right. And it's—I don't mean
1: the five thousand acre ranches. No, no, I no. Mean, I
2: mean single family houses. Have they gone up also? Uh, absolutely. The that's way, all
1: California Exodus.
2: Yes, that's part of it. With more Idaho, but uh-huh. but yeah, absolutely. The way the way I think that we should look at uh, housing prices in the U.S. Um, during this pandemic is. Virtually every housing market was impacted right. and we saw dramatic price growth in a very short pe- period of time because you know the Fed, I believe, kept rates too low for too long and now have to undo the damage um, by making rates a lot higher, but prices aren't really falling no because the, right. the rapid change in rates has basically kept inventory frozen.
1: huh Re- Really fascinating. So, so let's talk a little bit about what's going on in uh, the world of uh, of appraisal you, you've been an appraiser for decades the space seems to be going through a little bit of turmoil these days what, what's going on in appraiserville
2: appraiserville <laughs> is what it is um, yeah uh, so you know in the residential appraisal world where you know you buy a house or refinance your house uh, your mortgage on your house you know, appraiser comes out values the property and then um and then gives the appraisal to the bank and then the bank decides what how much money they're going to give you and then you close um this industry uh is um uh, if you think about the numbers of people there's about seventy five thousand appraisers nationwide um there's organizations and trade groups um that are active, but really the whole industry has been asleep at the switch for the changes that have been coming. Um, I have been publicly highly critical of an organization called the Appraisal Foundation.
1: And, and, And let me just annotate that. You have been humiliating those guys on a regular basis, just embarrassing them for not doing their jobs. A- am I overstating that? You've called them on the carpet repeatedly.
2: Yeah, it it's began during the pandemic, and uh, and it's just an endless array of problems, which I'll I'll sort of explain in a second. But what it led to is um, uh, this idea, and it's one of the platforms of the. Um, uh, Biden's um, White House, in terms of um, removing racial bias from the appraisal industry, residential and commercial. Right. And for context, um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics tracks 400 industries in the U.S. Uh huh. And on the matter of diversity, uh, in 2021. The appraisal industry was 400th out of 400 in diversity. Wow, we were less diverse than farmers and ranchers. Wow, and um, and this you know it fluctuates a couple percentage points up and down every year, Um, but the structure of the industry and how new people to get in um, is was created by the appraisal foundation, and and they have basically refused to take any action, they set up committees and councils as if that is action, but they don't actually do anything. And, um, and so, uh, it, it's become more and more heated to the point where the appraisal subcommittee, which is allowed to monitor and review the appraisal foundation. The appraisal foundation is basically to maintain the sort of the the verbiage of our license you know our certification what we're supposed to do and um and you know like the the appraisal subcommittee which is is the basically provides no oversight this this appraisal foundation not-for-profit literally has no oversight they figured out a workaround which i've exposed Uh And uh, and they're flying to Dubai first class and they're going to, you know, having meetings in Palm Springs and, you know, living the high life, which all could be on Zoom. And um, and it's a very sort of it's a monarchy.
1: To to be fair, Dubai is where all the best appraisers go for. You know continuing All their education training. yeah right, they, right. especially
2: from like Iowa and right. you know Montana. so so let's let's put
1: some flesh on these bones yeah. so people understand what you're referring to. yeah. Um, and there have been not one but multiple stories about a black family in America owns a house right They want to refinance. they want to take advantage of low rates. They have an appraiser come in. the appraisal comes in not only too low for them to do the refinance but too low compared to the neighbor's house. So they request another appraiser. Only this time, all the photos of the black family, any indicia of African-American homeownership goes away. They literally hang photos of the smiling white family. They have their neighbor greet the appraiser, the white woman from next door. So she greets them, and lo and behold, the appraisal comes in pretty much as expected. Right. That, that sounds like a, either a ridiculous sitcom or... Or a made-up story, but but this is
2: a real thing, isn't it? It's it's largely it's yes that's that's largely the way we've seen um, uh, a dozen or so of these stories, and they get recirculated and, and over, over and, and over. over again. Um, what we're actually seeing now is so the logic is that hey, you know, I think my home is worth five hundred thousand you appraised it for 400,000 so you're a racist.
1: Well, that's a little that's a little over the top in the other direction.
2: Correct. So so but that is that is a big part of the narrative. So so you have like two core uh, uh, parts of the appraisal world. You have now you have a whole sloth of people saying, "Hey, I'm not a racist. Like I'm just assessing the value." And then you have people like me that are saying, <laughs> "Let's not that, you know, we don't have a leg to stand on as an industry. Say, hey,
1: you're 100 percent white, and lo and behold, you're appraising black-owned homes in in white neighborhoods for less than the white-owned. Correct. Homes. So, so it, it's raising so, some questions. So
2: you're sort of preaching to the choir when you say, hey, we're you know we don't have this problem, even though. Uh, and listen, is there you know uh, unconscious bias in everyday life? Of course there sure. is. Right. So the other side is my focus is to force the foundation or remove the leadership of the foundation so that so that the regulatory world um, or, you know, sort of the government uh, side of the the story, you know, that there's a representative membership, you know, not zero of people of color. Right. That's the first step, because this other step is just not effective. Right. So I've been talking about this for for like a couple of years, and then the appraisal subcommittee, which is made up of like the head the heads of you know of uh, uh, various organizations like FDIC and the GSEs and you know Fendi, the Alpha- Freddie alphabet yeah the 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 alphabet soup of Washington sort of anybody that really you know, the CFPB like anybody that touches on like the mortgage process, and I was invited um uh in you met, testified in, right testified for three hours and it was my only first time on c-span but it's three hours right and uh, so
1: anybody could go to youtube or c-span yes, and
2: find your testimony yeah absolutely um and i was highly critical uh of the foundation which there were five experts and two of them were from the foundation and um they uh, one okay. of them attacked me you know sort of named names because of the massive conflict this person has in her right. job with what her husband does for a living. Which is what? Um, runs, like, the biggest um, online sort of continuing ed credit thing, and they have an ex- So this is incestuous, a deal. corrupt. Right, right. but just, they don't see it that way. Right. Um, just
1: because be- you're giving the gig to your husband's business doesn't mean it's corrupt, Perhaps they're the best person for this.
2: Absolutely. Then you shouldn't be the chairman of the committee right. that changes the regulations that uh, causes changes that go into the cloud. Anyway, it's it's a it's convoluted, but like that's what we're dealing with. Right. And um and, it's a little fiefdom. Yeah. And I, I remember after it, you know, like I'm only in this to try to make it right <laughs> and uh to make it fair. Uh, i don't get anything out of it other than like not tainting our industry um how dare you sir i, I know but <laughs> but anyway it's sort of that's the kind of stuff i talk about I, I,
1: you know you we talked earlier about the national association of realtors and and i used to be so in just infuriated by their monthly releases back in 06 07 08 because the first paragraph would be the data. Right. And then the next six paragraphs were just yeah. endless spin. Yeah. And it's like, I understand you're a trade group. Right. But if you're a trade group, maybe the government shouldn't rely on your data because you're not fair actors in the space. You're biased and self-interested. I, I don't care what the data is. I just need it to be accurate so I could do my job. It,
2: it, such, that's exactly right. And, and actually... Um, you know, if you look at the timeline, so NAR was like the, what the Fed used, the, the <laughs> right. like, all the NAR data for, like, understanding the housing market. And, um, you know, and you had the, I can't remember the, David he was an right, economist. Sure. And then now it's been Lawrence Yoon ever since. Right. And I remember, like, in the beginning, it was like, you know, the, when Lehman happened, the Lehman right. collapse, it was like, it's a bubble with a slow leak. Um, you know, The housing bubble. <laughs> And uh, there are all kinds of uh, uh, housing bubble blogs, you know, right. just huge, you know, like, you know, it's a black hole and we're all going to die. We're going to fall <laughs> on the edge of the abyss. So you get like the extremes. And then it was interesting. The Fed pivoted to Case Shiller. Right. Uh, in You know, so academia for uh, looking at um, the state of the housing market. But the problem with Case Shiller is it's the equivalent and I've, joked with you before about this, uh, you know, highly respected Nobel laureate, um, but it's not really suitable for everyday use because it reflects the housing market five to seven months ago. So so like when you got up this morning, did you take the average temperature of five to seven months ago <laughs> to decide what you're gonna wear today, right? right? It's It was made for trading um, to hedge housing and it never, you know, there was no adoption um, of it. And then they, they t- went from there and then they went to CoreLogic, which was more sort of-
1: A little more real-time? A l- little more, real-time? more
2: more harder data, um, more data, um, probably better. So so you brought up
1: David- um, Luray. Uh, Luria. Um, I have a couple of, of blog posts on him. Yes. But my favorite was the one that took the book he wrote and then- just revised it each year. Just revised the cover. Yeah. And it's literally, are you missing the real estate boom? Uh was 2005. And then the 2006 edition, same book, different cover. Why the real estate boom will not bust and how you can profit from it now. And then the 2007 version of the exact same book, all real estate is local.
2: Yeah. <laughs> And, um, That's called repurposing,
1: right? And and then he left in two thousand and nine. Yeah. Um. And I had to change my title from one expletive to a a, a more tolerable expletive, which I simply just called it former NAR economist David Lorea's. D- <laughs> but it's just about. Um, it was just about an article. I don't remember if it was the Times or the Journal that. Working for Realtors, David Larea was famously optimistic. Not so much anymore was, right. was the headline. Right. They, so so wait, you switch jobs and suddenly your entire belief system changes? Change. That That's a little... And what, we all do it, but not 180 degrees. No,
2: no. Uh, it, it was uh, one of my favorite moments during the run-up to the housing bubble was I was in the green room on a national TV th- uh, special something it was like a it was about housing and it was a town hall and i was literally in the green room with david (laughs) laray robert schiller right susie ormond and Dottie uh, herman no okay as some other uh i i don't remember what he he wasn't a housing person and uh i got to listen to them I was listening to him talk and I remember, I remember, um, this is really surreal because wait, Larea and Schiller, that's Schiller. Hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. And cause
1: he was pretty bearish. Um, yeah,
2: he actually, you know, was really calling for, um, I did a thing with him, um, like, a two years later, um, at Lincoln center and, uh, he was like predicting like a 50% correction in housing, in housing prices,
1: prices. Which is a little aggressive. A
2: little aggressive, but <laughs> but you know, not like a single digit decline. It was, you know, more in the, the scope of what I, happened.
1: I did a panel with him. So it was Schiller, myself, maybe it was Dottie Herman, and somebody else. So it was like real estate, real estate, stock market. Right. Um and, and then Schiller being the academic. And I referenced the—who um, are the guys who wrote This Time is Different? I'm drawing a blank. Reinhardt oh, and Rogoff. Yes. So Reinhardt and Rogoff had this wonderful paper. I want to say it was like 2006. Yeah. And they looked at five financial crises. It was Sweden, Mexico, Japan, the U.S. in 29. I never remember what the fifth one was. And they found, on average, when you have a crisis that originates in the finance sector due to too much leverage, too much speculation, on average, markets get cut in half, and real estate loses about 30% of its value. Sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more, but when you look yeah, across the universe- it straddles 30%. Right? And so, that, by the way, that paper, which was, I don't know, 15 pages long, became the basis for- this time it's different. Eight hundred years of financial folly, um, and the numbers stayed the same. It's when you have a speculative bubble built on easy money and excess lending. Assume at the peak it's going to be a thirty percent drop in um, in real estate prices, which goes to your statement. What we're seeing today. Is probably not going to have the same sort of drop as then because this isn't based on easy money. This is based on where we've locked in easy money and we don't want to sell.
2: Right, and, but also uh, I, I would I would differ a little bit and say that we're not locked in on easy money. Uh, banks during the called the pandemic or a housing boom never lost their mind.
1: Right and, this time and, as opposed to last time. Right
2: so so and
1: there is no there isn't the same amount of non-bank lenders that as we saw in
2: 06 05 07 right, right.
1: that where it was outside of Fannie Mae and outside right, of outside the outside their
2: purview uh-huh. um but 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 in this cycle like credit you know uh got easier during the the boom but it was still well below long-term norms um, and so, you know, even with this, you know, the inventory sort of distortion, we're not looking at the banking world like collapsing at the end of this, uh, because the on the lending itself, because the lending standards never really got crazy. If anything, they got tighter. They get and yeah, especially after <laughs> the last year, after rates, uh, they really clamped down. Right. Um, so l- lending is much tighter now than it was a year ago. But a year ago. It was, you know, significantly tighter than um, the last three decades, excluding the housing bubble. Um, you know, go, going back in time, it was banks just never lost their mind, which I think is a huge difference in the two eras.
1: So, before we get to our favorite questions, let me throw you a couple of curveball questions. Uh, the first, uh, I should really just throw this one away. Um, the the article that described you as the most quotable trusted man in New York real estate also said you look like a middle aged Tom Hanks. <laughs> I, I have to admit, I, I don't see that.
2: Didn't, well, it's funny because no, I I don't see that, but um, but uh. Uh, in the early days of my blogging, I think I started in 05, uh-huh. and you were, you know, several years ahead of me. You were my first interview on my podcast. I by recall
1: the way. that in your old office my, before yeah. it was renovated. Yep. Um, in in a, I've never walked into an office where every square inch of the walls is covered with newspaper clippings and frames. <laughs> how, how many times have you been in the front page of the Times?
2: Nineteen. Uh, that's insane. Yeah, yeah. I uh, About once a year is for <laughs> the last two years. days. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, yeah, I um, – um, what, uh, what were you? Uh, uh, Tom lost, Hanks. Oh, yeah, Tom <laughs> Hanks. So a long time ago, a, a blogger in the Midwest said that um, I was a lookalike of Bobby Flay. The, I, the I've had Bobby TV. Flay
1: on the show. I could see a, some they did much like two, more than
2: Tom Hanks. They 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 compared two pictures side by side, and it right. did look pretty similar, right? Um, but that was like twenty years ago, right. so oh, that's, so, that's and I, I I haven't been able to generate any PR out no, of that.
1: No more celebrity. And then the other curveball, which I'm fascinated by, I I think you've been into pretty much every penthouse in manhattan
2: i mean maybe a that's
1: a slight exaggeration but not much a lot yeah what's the favorite apartment you've been into in in your history of appraising these apartments what, what's the one that really stands out and they could be two different yeah penthouses. yeah
2: yeah so so i thought you know forgetting the um like the condition it was in and just like the look uh-huh. Um, was, uh, one of my favorites was in the Sherry Netherland, which is a hotel co-op on the corner of the Southeast corner of the park. Uh-huh. Um, it was just spectacular. The view, you know, the thing that I don't get to do very much in my business is see these apartments at night right? and the night, you know, with all the lights. Although, you know, we used to live in, when we lived in Manhattan, we could see the park um but i have to say and i i'm i have a picture of myself standing on the there's a i think it's 50 central park south it's not the penthouse it was a penthouse that was going to be created inside the giant green roof uh-huh. that was you know looks like copper even though it was fake it was painted green to look like it was <laughs> copper but i literally climbed through like a porthole and stood on the roof i have a picture of it um, I mean, so you're outdoors. I'm outdoors, and you're in the center of Central Park South, looking north, and you you see Fifth and Central Park West on either side, and it's just spectacular. And many people don't get that opportunity, and that was uh, an amazing experience. I'm I'm. It may end up being. A, a hopefully, it'll. I'll be able to use it in in my uh, book someday as a cover
0: the countdown has begun from may 14th to 16th a thousand global leaders will gather in doha for the carter economic forum powered by bloomberg join heads of state influential ministers and leading ceos to make new connections gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions Request your invite for this exclusive event at cartereconomicforum.com.
1: All right, so let's jump to our favorite question, starting with, what are you streaming these days? What's keeping you entertained?
2: So, uh... Uh, every year, every time you ask me this, because I know you—you're you, a big fan of—you um, know—you've called this the golden age of television. It, it, is it not? I don't disagree. I mean,
1: it, it's just—I was never never watched television as a kid, and I'm making up for lost time
2: it is the strangest thing but i hardly watch any tv i know that um and i don't stream anything regularly podcasts um i listen to masters in business um i sucking up not necessary, (laughs) but but it's true um i uh i listen to one of the one of my favorite new podcasts is called hard fork hard fork it's a new york times podcast about technology and it's the guys laugh throughout the whole show. It's they're serious writers. It's it's highly entertaining, especially following the Elon Musk and Twitter escapades over the last six months. It's been incredible, but really good stuff. Um I listen to uh, I I really like uh, uh, Professor Galloway, you know, his stuff. Uh, he does a podcast called Pivot. He
1: with- he also is locked out of his Twitter account as am yes. I, and. It's just a, now. I have a couple hundred thousand. He's got half a million followers. Yeah, they're like, yeah, we don't care.
2: Yeah, just just it's, like the incompetency
1: is mind blowing. It's, it's mind next bo- level.
2: Right. It's it's it it's like how to devalue an asset without <clears throat> even trying.
1: <laughs> like and, and normally, no one's around to pick up the pieces and take advantage. It looks like Threads might have a shot. Yeah, considering that that was built with. You know, a, a dozen or so engineers, right? Very quickly, and leveraging
2: off of the technology of the platform for Instagram.
1: But if Facebook, which is a giant company, which is an eight hundred billion dollar company, if they threw a hundred people at it, they could. Uh, to me, wait, you wouldn't hire a hundred people to steal a forty billion dollar business? Yeah, forty four. I mean, it, it, it's there for the taking. Right. Just, uh, I'm not. I'm not a big Instagram fan, and no. I'm certainly not a Facebook fan. But I'm I'm on threads waiting for compliance to give me approval to start yeah. threading, yeah, tweeting. I, I don't even know what you would yeah, call, I,
2: I call it. Yeah, uh, I call it threading. But uh, yeah, I, I'm on it every day just playing around and, and seeing. Not quite
1: Twitter yet.
2: No, there's not enough engagement yet. But um, that... But the at, engagement at, in, on Twitter is collapsed. Yeah,
1: no, it's completely collapsed. Like it's there's gone. hardly
2: any engagement um, now.
1: I thought that's because I have 200 followers in my backup account. Right, right. As opposed to 200,000. Right. But uh, my buddy Dave Noddick has said they he has he he has a friend who tracks thin twit activity. Yeah. And he said if you look at the top 500 or thousand accounts, everything's just falling off a cliff. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, uh.
2: It's 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 sad. That was my social media of choice for, yeah, same, s- same. for years. Um, and,
1: and the uh, the DM side of it was really interesting. To Like, I could slip into a DM with Dick Thaler and say, hey, have you seen this paper? And I'm not going to bother him on his phone with that. Right. And an email seems too formal. So I, I miss that. And I've kicked it up the chain at Bloomberg to try and, you know, figure yeah. out, hey, they're a big client. And... There's like 11 people left there and yeah. it's the same phone number that I set the account up with years ago. All right, I'm going to stop whining about my, <laughs> my and Scott Galloway's Twitter accounts and ask you, um, tell us about your mentors who helped to shape your career.
2: Yeah, the the first one was um, before I got into real estate. Actually, was the food service director of a, of a hospital in Chicago.
1: I kind of knew that, didn't I?
2: Yeah, I, I ended up, uh, and my first boss out of college, a gentleman named John Nelson, really just taught me how to navigate the politics and uh, how to get stuff done. Mm-hmm. Um, he was uh, fascinated with post-it notes. <laughs> um but uh, I always felt a really good, you know, I always had a really good feeling. I'd have to say, um, uh, in sort of the modern era, my uh, it's it's was was Dottie Herman, um, who was basically the person that put Douglas Elman together. Um, she's not in, not active with the company these days, but uh, she saw what I did with market studies, you know, w- what I could do, and she embraced it and. Pushed, you know, you know, encourage me, push me uh, to expand my footprint out of side of New York City.
1: She, she's wildly, she was wildly successful in real estate. Yeah, I've met her a couple of times. She kind of reminded me of my mom. Okay, who was one of these like just I, uh, my mom, was a cl- broker, right? Classic real estate agent. Yep. But knew the area, knew the neighborhood. No BS. Hey, we'll find you a house that'll fit you. Yeah. And we'll do whatever we have. We'll, we'll show you a million houses if that's what it takes. She sort of like tough, broad, grew up in the Bronx. My mom, Dottie Herman kind of reminded yeah. me of that in the same way.
2: Yeah, I always felt like, you know, she recognized... You know what I could do, and she pushed and protected and nurtured and made it happen. So I'm forever appreciative of and, that.
1: And you've been doing these reports for Douglas Elliman for a long time. Nineteen ninety four is when that, it began. So you're coming up on your thirtieth year. That's amazing.
2: It's a it's it's a lot, um, but it's. uh I don't know. It's 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 fascinating because on one hand, you're looking at all these different markets markets, but they they draw you know you can look at very similar metrics and tell different stories by the sort of combination of the metrics and guess what there's median price trends in Orange County California just like there are in Manhattan what what do they say and actually I think what has really established the report series for Douglas Solomon is that it's anybody can spit out numbers it's it's sort of you know, capturing um, the you know what's actually happening. Your like,
1: reports are about putting them into context, the right context, so it's
2: usable. Right. So, so I interact with a lot of media. Um, I probably get six interactions by email or phone call every day. I don't wow. have I don't have any PR, and um, um and it's just because I I'm accessible. Um, that's the biggest thing about. <laughs> Uh, that's media.
1: That that's really interesting. Um, let's talk about everybody's favorite question, which is, "What are you reading?" Tell us about your favorite books and what you're reading right now.
2: So I uh, just finished two books. One was uh, Billionaire's Row, which was written by a friend of mine, a reporter named Kathy Clark. Uh-huh. And it, if you ever want to know, like what the how insane the development world. <laughs> um is uh this is the book this is about
1: these pencil thin right super 120 talls. story buildings taller than the Empire State building. Right. But but on like a, a smaller postage footprint pad. that right.
2: wouldn't have been possible fifteen years it, ago. It's
1: all tech it's all the materials the sciences. materials
2: and the engineering has changed dramatically but it, they're more expensive to build, right? right? And uh yeah and and to see you know uh you know you have a condo that's 1550 square Feet tall, tallest condo in the world. Hundred
1: million dollars, some y- crazy number.
2: Well, the penthouse is for sale for two hundred fifty million dollars. Right, good um, aspirational
1: pricing, a term that you coined. Yes, actually
2: right. on the air during a Bloomberg interview, <laughs> uh, a TV interview. Uh, I don't remember, like two thousand fifteen or sixteen. Um, but uh, you know that you have one eleven West Fifty Seventh on Billion Billionaires Row is really. Sort of west and East Fifty Seventh Street uh-huh. uh, to Park Avenue on the east and probably Eighth Avenue on the west. Um, but then in the book, she includes uh, Two Twenty Central Park South, which has the two hundred thirty nine million dollar um, sale by this a, a bargain uh, compared Gervin. to Two Fifty. Right, right, exactly. You save yourself eleven million dollars. Right, right. Is got, it is
1: but, it true these buildings are essentially half sold?
2: Uh, I think the numbers now is that they're about in aggregate about sixty percent sold, Woohoo! but there are buildings that are have done you know have sold out like Four Thirty Two Park, uh-huh. um, and then buildings that are you know having trouble. I mean, this is um, you know the 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 miscalculation of Billionaires Row was that the market, the global market, wasn't as wide and as deep as everybody thought. Um, you know, I used to joke that. Uh, these buildings, or the high-end buildings in New York, were like the world's most expensive bank safety deposit boxes, right. where you put your valuables in, and then you don't go there very often. <laughs> and um, and that's mainly what these are. Where the there was a New York magazine article years ago, one of these buildings where it's dark at night. There's like one or two lights on because right. nobody's there. Right? It's
1: just they're just uh, self storage.
2: Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> And uh, anyway, so uh, but I can't say enough about this book. The other book I'm re- I just read. Wait,
1: before you go off oh, okay. of Billionaire's Row, I I have to ask. So so I've seen people try and extrapolate these sales and listings quarter billion dollars, as if it's a an actual marketplace. It, it's almost like oh, there's one of eleven Rembrandts around right. for sale, and it comes up for sale. Every generation and the other 10 have already been grabbed by right. museums. How much can you really read into it considering there's a few dozen of these and maybe a few dozen potential purchasers? This isn't like a true real estate market.
2: It It is a... So I think of it as a market of outliers. Uh-huh. And, and, uh, and so I told you earlier that I, I track... I started in 2014 tracking... Any sales that close that actually closed um, for uh, fifty million or higher, and then and um, and I went back in time back to like two thousand, and really the that world began in about two thousand fourteen, uh-huh. um, uh, where there were maybe seventeen or eighteen nas- nationally sales fifty million or higher. And now, and now, so. Uh, 2021 was the record and I, I believe it was in the low forties. I want to say there were 43 sales. Mm -hmm. They were, you know, somewhere in the mid thirties and 22. And then this year looks like it's on track to be, you know, probably in the mid twenties. Um, uh, and you know, you look at this and there's like a transaction like a week or, you know, every other week, um, um, but in 2021, there was like a transaction every... It felt like every day it wasn't. Right. Um, it, it became a market that is detached from the local market that it sits within. In that makes many, sense. It, In many ways, these transactions have nothing... You know, they get so many more eyeballs through article coverage on high-end transactions right. and titans of industry buying these places... But they really are this market—a um, national, or international market. That's not like, hey, these are New York City sales. No, these are—you know—these are not that well connected to New York. Uh,
1: uh, in the spring of 2022, I was speaking at uh, the International Luxury Real Estate Alliance's annual conference, and at night we're having dinner, and one of the people uh, there. Uh, is a real estate agent in Palm Beach, and she gets the confirm from her assistant, hey, the $100 million house is now in contract. The deal went through. And I said, wow, that has to be a hell of a house. And I'll never forget. Her response was, eh, don't really like it. It has a it has a seawall it doesn't have a beach, not the ideal part of Palm Beach Now like oh ho ho roll that back. <laughs> if I'm spending a hundred large, yeah, you're telling me it's not the perfect house. Even a hundred million dollars is a bunch of, of compromises and her a- answer was it's not a lot of inventory around. If you want that type of house in that part of the world, you're gonna have to make some compromises. <laughs> And my right. answer would be, uh, then I guess I'm going to skip that part of the world. Right, right, exactly. For exact. hundred million dollars, I want exactly what I want, and uh, I don't want the seawall. I want the white sandy beach. Right,
2: right. Uh, no, it, it's it's and it's it, what's interesting in New York is it's building by building. So, mm-hmm. so you have um, 157, which was I call, Extel Development, um, uh, which I think they were original. I read this in the Billionaires' Row book, They they were originally called intel development but they got sued for the name <laughs> so they changed their name to Xtel. right just and there you, you know go. because uh but but uh sales you know that closed from the sponsor the developer in 2016 um, mm-hmm. by 2017 2018 their values were 50 percent less really? they were selling wow. for 50 less that seems to be about the marker so you say oh that applies to all billionaires row no mm-hmm. um the you penthouse have
1: penthouse is a lot more than everything else, I right? Well,
2: that. also too, yeah. The penthouse there sold for a hundred million. Uh, Michael Dell bought it. That okay. was the at the time that was the highest for a short period of time. But um, my point is that you look at other buildings during the same era, like 432 Park, or you look at uh, 220 Central Park South. They didn't see they didn't see fifty percent discounts. In fact, 220 Central Park South, a Vornado Realty development. Um, the resales, the you know, uh, after they were bought from the sponsor, we've had f- um, a resale sell for double what they bought from the sponsor. Wow! Uh, it, which is sort of in- crazy, and, and it's only two blocks away. Um, but so it, that
1: the building itself matters not not just the building the size the amenities everything about it really makes a big difference absolutely all right so besides billionaires row what else what else um I
2: out? just read a sort of fast and easy book just out of the blue called easy money and it's basically a throttling of uh cryptocurrency
1: uh-huh. who wrote it,
2: it? um I can't remember, I, I don't remember his name, but he, uh, it's very, very clear and uh, how he's going through it. And basically there's no, you know, that he contends there's no value to crypto. You know, it's just basically, you know, it's a rife with people, n- nefarious sort of uh, types that most people lose money. I, you know, who knows? Um, kind of interesting though. But it was an interesting take. And then the one I just read uh, I'm, I'm actually just started two books. Sometimes I read books in parallel, is um, a book called The Slip, which is um, about Coentes, I think that's how you pronounce it, Slip in downtown Manhattan uh-huh. was one of the first sort of artist enclaves uh-huh. like you would think of Soho or Tribeca right. in the 70s. Um, this was more like in the 40s and 50s. Um, uh-huh. And I had no idea you know, I've never heard of this, but it's a really, it looks really good. I've read a little bit of it. And the other the other book is that Gretchen Morgenstern. Uh, these the Plunderers. Are, the, these are The Plunderers yes. or something about. Um,
1: I had her on the show. I read the book. She, yeah, she's really yeah. interesting. But by the way, we went to the Hopper exhibit down at the New Whitney at the end of the uh, High Line. And apparently off of Washington Square Park was another one of those artists, Enclave where Hopper and a bunch of his, you know, colleagues, you mean like East Village, like yeah, Saint, Saint yeah. Mark's Place. Yeah. No, yeah. this is this is right off of right off of, of West Forth, off, okay. off of Washington Square Park. Okay. And um, there, at the show, there's a series of letters printed about him arguing with his landlord and him arguing with really he he testified at the local zoning board because they wanted the it was sort of zoned the way. Uh, eventually Soho was right. that gave a, a good advantage to, to artists and before anyone really understood who he was right. he was complaining and saying you're going to change the whole character of the neighborhood from an artist's enclave to just a commercial district. And well when
2: I when I first moved to New York the East Village or you know Alphabet City you know the Avenue A, B, C as you go further east um, I remember there was a condo conversion uh, right on uh the the park there that the neighborhood centers around and it was it was spray painted on the front door of this conversion uh die yuppie scum. I remember that that, that became the battle cry and uh that you know, picture was in New York magazine or somewhere. Yeah.
1: I mean that became a famous image.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was there. It was it was, you know, it was a pretty rough neighborhood in terms of you know, a lot of, you know, elevated crime and all that, but now you'd never know it. Totally gentrified. Yeah, to totally gentrified. Yeah,
1: am- amazing. Uh, down to our last two questions. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad interested in a career in either real estate or data analytics or appraisal?
2: Yeah, so I'm sort of, um, I, I think of it as uh, uh, I've seen my my various, I have four, four sons, you know, going through interview processes. And first of all, it's so different than when I began. So I don't know how relevant my advice would be, but we had, you know, it's all through Zoom. They winnow it down, you know, and then you finally meet in person. You go through like multiple layers of interviews on Zoom. So it's very detached. There's not a lot of sort of personal connecting. so So the first sort of base level advice is, um, really think about your appearance on zoom it sounds really
1: huh that's
2: um I, you know because i find zoom to be sort of soul sucking you know <laughs> after you do quite a you know I, during the pandemic i think i was doing like eight hours of zoom a day oh that is soul sucking yeah and and you're just completely drained um but i but i think that you, that's you know the secret to zoom right mm-hmm. to
1: turn your camera off and just surf through uh bring a trailer uh, <laughs> And, and just, you know, uh-huh, just say frequently, yup, yup. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's a bad connection. I got no video. And, and well, what I have that on got me the, through when, the pandemic. When I do
2: Zoom, um, you know, because I always found it challenging to look up at, like, the top of the monitor. I hate that. So I have
1: the cameras that hang down.
2: Yeah, I got uh, the camera that hangs down in the center of the screen. It's very small, so it doesn't right. block anything. That was, like, one th- uh, during the pandemic, I bought them for one for home and one for the office. Uh, through a Kickstarter startup, now there's a bunch more of them. Right. But it's the greatest thing ever for right. for that because you can check emails and look at you know if you're not and nobody knows and nobody can tell. It's 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 a it's a great invention.
1: <laughs> that, that, that's hilarious. And our final question: what What do you know about the world of real estate today? You wish you knew 40 years or so ago when you were first getting started.
2: Uh, you know, I I think uh, to do everything I could to uh buy something earlier on I didn't buy a house till my mid30s because I was trying to grow my business and um, I think if I had started you know the the idea of you know starting a little bit earlier um is uh you know when I think of the prices even relative to my income at the time right it there wasn't such a stretch such a multiplier effect even though mortgage rates are much higher
1: so let me flip that answer on you and say would you give your kids who are now in their late 20s early 30s right more or less would you give them the same advice hey buy a house sooner rather than later
2: yeah uh three of my four sons are um all homeowners or multiple homeowners and uh you know have set up you know they're they're doing they they it's worked out great um so so i not that you know, I advised them in the negotiation a little bit and all that, but they really did it on their own and uh, and got the homes that they love. My my youngest, um, who just uh, turned twenty five, uh, is living his best life in Manhattan as a renter. Right. Um, um, but, you know, he's got a completely different lifestyle than his brothers in the suburbs. So. Right.
1: They're all married and, and getting married and Married and,
2: you know, four grandkids. And, uh, wow. you know, it's know, uh, it's very odd.
1: Jo- Jonathan, thank you for being so generous with your time. Cheryl, thank you for coming in. I, I appreciate this. We have been speaking with Jonathan Miller. He is CEO of Miller Samuel, uh, one of the most respected appraisal and data analytics firm covering the world of residential real estate. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of our previous 500 episodes we've had over the past nine years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz. Follow me on threads at Ritholtz which used to be my uh, name on Twitter, maybe one day I'll get that back. Follow all of the Bloomberg family of podcasts on Twitter at podcast. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps with these conversations together each week. Uh, Atika Valbron is my project manager. Paris Wald is my producer. Justin Milner is my audio engineer. Sean Russo is my head of research. I'm Barry Rittles. You've been listening to Masters in Business, on Bloomberg Radio.